0: Today is a line in the sand. I never thought this day would come. I don't know what I did think would happen, but I just never imagined this. This is the first Sunday in what will be the year of our 10th anniversary. Into one is going to be 10 years old in a couple of months. What a great way to start off a new decade Hard to believe. And and honestly, it it fills me with thanks to God and thanks to you. Without the partnership of both this, this, none of this would have ever happened. So, thank you again. And think of the stories that, that we have to tell. Incredible things that have happened in our midst. Healings provision, which is ongoing, gifts and buildings, don't, uh, renovations and baptisms and lives changed, people coming to faith in Jesus, people finding a new spiritual home, people being restored and, and encouraged to not give up on their faith and to re- recommit in their faith. And all of that, all of that is just, just the very tip of the iceberg. So, yeah, uh, woohoo and yeehaw! I've never been in a church like this, and I've got to tell you, it is beautiful, and I love it. I appreciate you all so much for together building this place in terms of a spiritual environment and a physical environment. What an opportunity that we've shared! What an opportunity that that you have welcomed other people into, and we're not done. We are continuing to be Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered, and mission-focused, and our mission is still for everyone, everywhere, all the time. We have been breaking down barriers and opening doors, and from the very start of Project Accessibility until now, that phrase that I believe God gave us has been focusing us as, uh, on our emphasis and our investment. What can we as a group do to break down barriers and open doors? And what can you as an individual do to break down barriers and open doors? Well, in order to break down a barrier, you need to first be able to identify it as a barrier. And here's one of the barriers that I've been able to identify within our culture at large. Today, we're going to start a new series and it's called Text. It's all about the Bible and the history of the Bible. And it is all about Helping us collectively to face a cultural barrier. This is one of the things that the culture in general is struggling with right now. It's a barrier that keeps them away from Jesus, away from the church, and away from Christians. Today, we're just beginning, and I want to set, set the scene for you. And that's why today's title is The Lay of the Land. Our culture is struggling, and one of the expressions for this struggle comes out in a phrase. This is a statement that perhaps you have heard from your son or from your granddaughter, or maybe it's your cousin. I just don't believe anymore. Now, I want to I pause right there for a moment. For some of you, this is not just a hypothetical somebody in some hypothetical place out there. This is the story of your children, isn't it? This is the story of your grandchildren. This is the story that maybe you yourself are wrestling with inside. This is what happened to your sister-in-law or to your brother-in-law. This is happening right now with a close family friend. You just, you just don't understand. They heard the same things that you heard. They said they believed all the same things that you said you believed. And now, when you have conversations with them, they're not even antagonistic. They're not even defensive. They say, that's good for you. That's your truth. I don't believe it anymore. And you can't figure out what it is that they don't believe. Heck, they might not even be able to tell you what it is that they don't believe. I just don't believe it anymore. For others of you, you, you are right in the middle of this with your children. Your university-aged son or, or daughter... Your, your niece or nephew that's in postgraduate studies, and fueling that, this mass exodus, is that once upon a time, a person had to read the Bible to know what was in the Bible. How else would you know, right? Well, the times, they are a-changing. Really, they've already changed, and we're just trying to catch up. No longer do you actually have to read a Bible or find a Bible, or borrow a Bible to know what was in one. Most people in a bygone era in our world respected the Bible, and even though they hadn't read it, they still respected it. And just like today, most people haven't actually read all of it. Your experience is probably similar to mine. This is a very common story. Some adult, when you were a child, gave you your first Bible. Here you go, and they said, this is God's holy word, it's all true. And you believed that it was all true, but you had not even read it. And let me let let you in on just a little, little secret here. Chances are that the adult that handed you your Bible and told you, here you go, it's all true, they hadn't read it all either. And that's just the way that our culture worked. Because everyone had so much respect for the Bible. Not everyone liked it, obviously, but it was generally culturally respected. Very few people read it, however. We left that to priests and to preachers to tell us what's inside this great big book. But those days are long gone because now you and your kids and your grandkids, the future generation and this current generation, they can all discover what else is in the Bible without owning or even opening a Bible. This calls for us to have a different approach to what we are doing. And in the last 20 years, skeptics have been exploiting a flaw in the modern version of Christianity because they had something that previous generations of skeptics and atheists did not have. They had the internet. They had an all-access pass to every single curious person in the entire world. And they have leveraged that extraordinary tool to preach their gospel of um, disbelief and to undermine Christianity. They've exploited a flaw in our modern post-Reformation version of Christianity. It's a flaw that is very difficult. It's almost impossible to exploit in a culture that holds the Bible in high, high esteem. And the flaw is simply this. this it, it's a false assumption. It's a shared false assumption regarding the foundation of Christianity. And when I say a shared assumption, I mean this. That Christians assume this. Non-Christians assume this. Post-Christians assume this. If you are considering losing faith or walking away from faith, you assume this. The false assumption has been with us since the Reformation, and it's now taken root and we're finally paying a price for it. And that's what I want to talk to you about today and in the next couple of weeks ahead. Since the Reformation, and now, okay, don't worry, don't get all nervous. We're not going to do a ton of history right now and just jump back through it all. But since the Reformation, Protestant leaders, teachers, and preachers, they've taught that the Scripture is the final authority for Christians. This, this was the whole point of the Reformation, that the church isn't the final authority, but Scripture. The Bible is the final authority for Christians. Sola Scriptura. And whether you grew up in church or not, you probably grew up hearing that. So consequently, for generations and generations, preachers have said stuff like, the Bible says, the Bible says, and Scripture teaches, and the Word of God says, and when you hear the Word of God says, Basically, what they're communicating, what the, the message that people are picking up is, if the Bible says it, that's all we need to know. Um, the Bible teaches it, we believe it. If the Bible says it, then, then that settles it. And that kind of language over generations has left and grown generations of Christians assuming that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. Please don't leave early. It's not. And it never has been. But most modern Christians think that it is. Most of the Christians who left the church thought that it was. Most of the generation that walked away from church assumed it is. And modern skeptics and those who are desiring to undermine the Christian faith assume that is the foundation of our faith. So that's why they attack it. This assumption has left many with the impression and understandably so, that the, as the Bible goes, so goes the Christian faith. If you can undermine the credibility of the Bible, you know that big collection of 66 books packaged all together, or if you can undermine one of the 66 books, or if you can undermine any part of any one of the 66 books of the Bible, then all of Christianity comes tumbling down. It's like a 66-card house of cards we're going to pull out Genesis or we're going to pull out Leviticus or we're going to pull out Exodus or we're going to pull out something from Revelation. We're going to to pull out something from one of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. If one part isn't true, then we can say that the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, then Christianity is False, And this is the assumption of most of modern society, whether they're Christian or not. And it's time to call out this shorthand, okay? This false assumption. Not for my sake, because you know what? I'm fine, thanks. Probably not for your sake either, because you're likely grounded enough. But for the sake of those who are growing up in this culture, and who are, who are searching in this culture, for your children's sake, and for your grandchildren's sake, for, for the sake of the next generation. These skeptics have been doing a masterful job at exploiting this false assumption about Christianity. And what's the church been doing about it? How's the church been responding? Well, sadly, for the most part, the church has done nothing. We are not paying attention. We're not looking at what's happening around us. We're just disregarding it. And so churches preach and teach and describe what they are doing in a way that, well, they've always done. Here's your Bible, it's all true. And and most adults have not read the whole Bible. They don't really know the difference and they don't want to be exposed as not having read the whole Bible. And we keep sending our kids into an increasingly post Christian culture. And when they come home with real academic questions, we give them Sunday school answers and they get frustrated. And then we get frustrated when they're giving in more and more to a secular world that they're living in. You know what? We're embarrassed, right? That we don't have substantial answers, but we also don't really know what to do about fixing it. And no wonder they are walking away from faith. Now, there is a group that has responded to all of this. There's a group of Christians, uh, Christian writers, apologists who have written many, many books defending the Bible, and they do a fantastic job. But let's be honest, the average person isn't going to go searching for these books, and they're not going to read them, and they're not going to put all the pieces together. And it, it, it all takes a little bit of, it only takes a little bit of the wrong to undermine the right thing. So I've, I've gone listening around, and I've been speaking around, and I've been uh, reading around, and I've been thinking around, and I'm thinking that working so hard to defend the Bible is the wrong way to go about dealing with this. There is a defense to the Bible. You don't need to worry if you're willing to study, if you're willing to put in some time learning and reading and putting the pieces together. But let's be honest, I don't think that we're going to get that passion from an entire generation. Or multiple generations. The better approach would be to address the false assumption that is driving all of this energy. So a number of years ago, I decided to change my approach. I didn't announce it. Um, I tried out some different stuff. I tried experimenting a little bit because I care too much about people who are struggling with what the church said and what it felt like to be in there. They're trying to put the pieces of their life together. And so I changed my approach. But I did not change what I believe. I believe strongly and I believe with mounting evidence and conviction that following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. I think you should follow Jesus before you believe the whole package. I think you should follow Jesus until you believe. You can belong here into one before you believe. It will make you a better parent. It'll make you a better boyfriend, it'll make you a better girlfriend, it'll make you a better employee, it'll make you a better employer. Following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. I didn't change my view of or respect for the Bible, but I am tired of hearing the stories of people walking away from faith for what I think. I think that they're not really very good reasons. And I care too much about the generations that are wandering away and looking for meaning and value and being convinced that it can be found apart from Jesus. I am tired of people passionate and worried about protecting their religion, a religion that has been made blind and that is making no difference in the relationships of the people in our community and in our families. I'm tired of them falsely believing that Jesus has nothing to speak into their lives and I want them back. We are on mission here for a reason. Everyone, everywhere, all the time. So I adjusted my approach. Not my beliefs, but my approach. I adjusted how I talk about the Bible and my teaching and my preaching. I adjusted that, and now I want to let you in on it too. Here's some of the what and some of the why. I want you to be informed and on mission with me. I want us to go forward together working in partnership with each other and working in partnership with the Holy Spirit. I have been working to stop saying anything that I think will lend fuel to the false assumption that as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. And I'm embracing to the best of my ability, and I don't get this right all the time, I am moving to embrace what I think our first century brothers and sisters' approach was to the foundation of their faith when it all started. So I stepped back and I stepped away from using phrases, leveraging phrases like the Bible says as a claim of authority. The Bible says, therefore, you have to. The Scripture teaches, that's why it's extra important The Word of God says, and I'm moving from the idea that there is power in a magic book. The book says it, so that means you have to do what I tell you. And as I'm moving, and I'm moving towards an approach that argues from and anchors to the event of the resurrection, rather than the authority of the Bible. Let me say it again, and I acknowledge I don't always do this without flaw. I don't always hit the mark on this, but I'm moving towards an approach that argues from and anchors to the event of the resurrection rather than focusing on the authority of the Bible. Because, and honestly, everyone knows this. Just stop and think for a moment. Everyone knows this. But it's time that we take what is true and we elevate it. So long before, and, and long before there was Christian scriptures, long before there was a thing called, you know, the Bible, long before all of that, there were Christians. Not just any Christians, but extraordinary Christians. Men and women who daily risked their lives for what they believed. And no one ever stood up in one of their gatherings and said, the Bible says. The Bible says. Because it wouldn't be there. There wasn't going to be there until the 400s that there was going to be an Old Testament, and a New Testament kind of all bound up together. These unbelievable people were were squished in between the temple system and the Roman Empire. Rome was not the first group to launch a persecution against Christians. The temple folk, well, they got there first. And they began oppressing and persecuting followers of the way mere days after the resurrection of Jesus. Sandwiched between the mighty Roman Empire and the all-encompassing temple system, they survived. But they didn't just survive, they thrived. They weren't fueled by a book. There was no book. They were fueled by an event. And this was a group whose faith was tougher than Roman steel and tougher than Roman nails and tougher than Roman whips. Many of their friends were nailed to Roman crosses because of their faith in Jesus and in the resurrection. And here's what is indisputable. Check it out now. Today, Rome is filled with crosses commemorating the death of Jesus. The city of Jerusalem is full of Christian tourists. How did that happen? What did they know that we don't know or that we've forgotten? In the last five years or so, I've been trying to step back and preach and teach from the standpoint of anchoring your faith and the faith of your kids and the faith of your friends, the faith of your extended family to the event of the resurrection rather than focusing on the authority of the scripture. Maybe you can track some of these marks. If you've been with us for a number of years, if you've been at Into One for some time, think back, I started with Base Camp, uh, the laying out of the basics of Christianity. Then in January 2019, we did a series called Deconverting. Then there was the pre-Easter countdown series called Tougher Than Nails. January 2020, we did the Upside Down This is not an always-on kind of emphasis. We talk about lots of other practical stuff, but I've been trying to lead you into this formidable faith, the faith of our first century brothers and sisters. And so I've tried to stop saying the Bible says. The Word of God teaches. Scripture reveals. Scripture teaches. And what I did instead was I tried to draw your attention to the people in the narrative. The people that were working in partnership with the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation. Just like you can work together in partnership with the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation. So, James. Almost every time I talk about James, I say, James, the brother of Jesus, what would you have to do to convince your brother that you were the son of God? That's James. When James died for his faith, he died believing that his brother was his Lord. What did James know? Let's look at what James wrote. Instead of, the Bible says, Peter. Peter, who betrayed his best friend and then then had to go face to face, face with his best friend. And we all know what that's like. Let's see what Peter has to say. John. John introduced us to the idea that God is love, and John did not believe that life was lovely or that his world was lovely or that his culture was lovely, but John, who stared into the eyes of love, he stared into the eyes of Jesus, and he determined that this man is God in a body, and if if God is anything like this man, and if this man is anything like God, then God is love. I've tried to share my love of history. And I've tried to draw you in to the, to the story behind the narrative and to focus and to anchor your faith on the event of the resurrection. So when you begin to doubt or when your son or your daughter begins to doubt, I want you to know that you can anchor your faith not to 66 books of the Bible, but to the event that launched Christianity to begin with. So for the last five years or so, um, every Easter... There's an exciting message, and I say something like this. I say, if you're here for the first time, I just want you to know that we believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, but not because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe you can remember hearing that. I want to anchor people's faith, and I want you to anchor your faith to the event of the resurrection and not just to 66 books of the Bible. Do I think that there's anything wrong with the 66 books of the Bible? No! But this is not about me. And this is probably not even about you. This is about a generation that we are losing and I think that it is unnecessary. I'm convinced that the vast majority of people who have walked away from faith did not walk away from anything that that would have anything to do with the essentials of our faith. And that has to change. And I want all those people to be restored and be brought back into one. I want them to be restored to the relationship with God. I want them to be restored with their families. I want them restored to the church because I believe that following Jesus will make your life better and it'll make you better at life. First century Christians, they, they knew what we need to know or what we have forgotten that the foundation of our faith is not, it is written. The foundation of our faith is something happened. Our epic story doesn't begin in Genesis. Our epic story begins Easter morning when disheartened and sad, brokenhearted, disappointed men and women stared into an empty tomb. And then they met their resurrected friend and rabbi who they would later declare as their savior. Our story, your story, your children's story does not hang in the balance of whether 66 ancient documents are all accurate at every forensic level that can be proven true at every level that someone can think of to test them all. Our faith hangs on a single event. Now, if you think I'm making this up or I'm questioning the importance of Scripture, then please pay attention right? The Apostle Paul, who brings us about half of the New Testament, he said it best. And Paul, here's a guy, in the course of a day, he went from a law-abiding Pharisee who was so committed to the law, so committed to the temple, that he was rounding up Christians, having them tortured and executed to honor and follow the law and the temple. And in the course of a day, He went from a law-abiding Pharisee to a passionate Jesus follower. One day. And when the scales fell off his eyes, not only could he physically see, he had extraordinary clarity between the Old and the New Covenant. The Apostle Paul himself says there is only one thing that serves as the foundation of our faith. And if this goes away, our faith goes away. It is not something that is written but it is something that has been written about. Here's the words of the Apostle Paul himself. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And so is your faith. Now hold on a second there, Paul. Are you saying that this whole big system and thousands of years of history, all of it is kind of just, teetering on a single event? And Paul would say, yes, that's what I'm saying. Do not be mistaken. This is not the it is written religion. This is the something happened religion. And if this happened, boom, game on. God has done something in the world. And if this did not happen, well, go ahead and ignore my preaching. Ignore your fairy tale faith, go back to the temple, go back to your polytheistic paganism. Christianity just ain't true. Christianity rests on a single event. The Apostle Paul did not say this about anything else. The Bible did not create Christianity. And I want you to know that. I want you to make sure that the next generation... Knows that I want them to know that if they decide to walk away from the Christian faith, they are not walking away from a book. They are walking away from an event that has been documented. And more importantly, they are walking away from a person. The company handbook didn't start your company. The Bible did not launch Christianity. And if you think I'm anti-Bible, then you don't know me and you have misunderstood me. Let me put it this way. Your birth certificate did not birth you. When people came to the hospital, when your mother had you, no one asked to see the birth certificate. If your mom was still alive, we could call her up on the phone and say, hey, what's more important to you, the birth certificate or the baby you birthed? Hopefully, (laughs) hopefully she would say the baby I birthed. When people came to the hospital after your mother had you, nobody asked to see the birth certificate. They wanted to see the baby. And the thing that I love about Into One is that for 10 years now, we've been, you've been showing them the baby. We keep pointing eyes up to Jesus and I say, we keep on doing that. The baby that showed up as an adult man on the banks of the Jordan River and John the Baptist was there and he said, oh my word, it's about to happen now. It's happening right now. It's beginning. The the, the promise that was given to Abraham all those years ago is coming true right here, right now, right in front of me, right in front of my eyes. I'm seeing it happen in our generation. Behold, the final lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the whole world. The one that Paul would say about later on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Do do you know what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus? That the foundation of our faith is a person. Jesus, the cornerstone, the very first stone that was laid. the, the, The thing that centers everything else about the building. The cornerstone of our faith is not, it is written. The foundation of our faith is something happened. God sent His Son into the world. He grew up to be a man, and and after His resurrection, He would gather His closest followers, and He would say something that was just unbelievable. Nobody would would say this unless they had some sort of proof to back it up, because they they had seen Him die. They, They knew where He was buried, and several of them had had breakfast with Him on a beach after that, and now there He was, Alive in front of all of them. And he makes a statement. He makes a statement that I hope you wrestle with. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you know what the final authority for your life as a Christian is? It's a person, it's Jesus. My final authority is Jesus. The foundation of my faith is Jesus. It's a person. That's what Paul says too. The authority is Jesus. So as the Bible goes, Christianity doesn't go. The skeptics have it wrong. Unfortunately, many Christians have it wrong also. The people who walked away had it wrong. But we together, let's get it right. Let's focus well as Jesus goes. So goes Christianity. And and, and if you want to know how Jesus goes, don't cross-examine the Bible. That's what skeptics do. That's what what atheists do. To take down Christianity, you need to cross-examine a list of people and a list of unexplainable events. You don't cross-examine the Bible. You have to start with a historical document called Matthew. You have to ask Matthew, where did all this intricate detail come from? And when you finish with Matthew and you think that you're able to write Matthew off, the game is just beginning. Now you have to wrestle with Mark. He's a different person. Tradition tells us that he got all of his information from the apostle Peter. And once you think that you've discounted Mark, you, you better be warmed up because now you've got to go head-to-head with Luke. Luke who tells us that he thoroughly investigated all these things. And then, then you've got to go to John. John lived to be an old man. Then, then you got to go to Peter. Then, then you got to go to James. <laughs> you got to take on James. Did I mention James is the brother of Jesus? Did I mention that he was stoned illegally and he went to his grave believing that his brother was his Lord? Before you discount Christianity, you've got to wrestle with James. And then, if you get through all of that, which you won't, then you're confronted with the Apostle Paul. And he's smarter than you can even imagine. The Apostle Paul who would say, hold on. I was an active, enthusiastic proponent of first century Judaism. I became a Jesus follower. I have been there. I have done that. I spent time with Peter. I spent time with John. I spent time with all the other apostles. I've been to Jerusalem and I'm I'm telling you, God has done something among us. The entire Old Covenant was pointing to this period of time. This man, Jesus, rose from the dead. And after you have taken on each one of these individually, not corporately, but individually, then you've still got some more explaining to do. You've got to explain the survival of the church. Sandwich between the empire and the temple. How in the world did the church survive that? Why is Rome full of crosses? Why is Jerusalem still filled with Christian tourists? You're going to need to explain that. Then, once you've gone through that, you've got to explain Jesus' remarkably detailed account of the destruction of the temple. How in the world did he give that much detail to an event that was actually going to happen that was considered impossible when he made the prediction? Why is there no mention of the Jewish war, the four-year Jewish war, between Rome and the people of Israel in any of the Gospels or in any of the literature of the New Testament? Why is there no mention of the destruction of the temple in the Gospels, or in any of the other New Testament literature, because it hadn 't happened yet, these documents weren 't written hundreds of years after the fact they were written while the temple was still standing you 've got to explain all of that. you can have Genesis, you can have Leviticus, you can have Exodus, you can have Revelation, you can take Philemon, you can have first, second, and third John. Just give me two Gospels in first Corinthians and it 's game. On, we are good to go. Jesus rose from the dead. That's where we anchor our faith. That's why we must anchor the faith of the next generation to the resurrection. And for the record, and we're going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks, okay? So I'm not going to just leave you hanging on all this stuff. We don't take those documents seriously Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. We don't take those documents seriously because they are in the Bible. This is something that has so undermined the credibility of our faith. This is an easy target for those who want to undermine Christianity, and they shoot for it every single time, and we keep giving them the ability to do that. We don't take these documents seriously because they are in the Bible. These documents were included in the Bible because Early Christians took them seriously. This generation needs to know that. And that's what's been so beautiful about watching Into One grow up. You have understood that it's not all about you. It's about the you next to you. The you next to you at work, the you next to you at school, the you next to you at your gym, the you next to you on the bus, the new you next to you everywhere all the time. And here's what Jesus said about you. You want to hear what Jesus said about you? At the very end, same speech where he said that all authority was given to him, Matthew chapter 28, now verse 20. And surely I am with you. Always to the very end of the age. And you know who the you is? Those who are on mission with Him. Ten years ago, we set out to be on mission to the best of our ability, with our Savior, with the Savior of the world. And and you have been so faithful uh, with bringing this mission to life that, that the world may know that God loves them and that Jesus died for them. You have been fantastic at learning and working towards breaking down barriers and opening doors. You have built a welcoming environment for those who have questions and for those who are struggling and for those who are in earnest pursuit. And to those of you who have been with us for years, you've trusted me. You've put up with our multiple locations and our multiple renovations. You have been generous with your time Treasure and talent, so generous, and I can't thank you enough. And to those of you who are new joining us at church online, some of you you've never even seen this building that we talked about, and you've never met these people that most of the people that we call into one. I want you to know that we need you, you make us better. We need you to engage. We've got some important work to do, and it's going. To take all of us partnering together with the Holy Spirit to fulfill our mission. Because what we're doing here and now is more important than it's ever been before. Because of the changes in our society. We should not be afraid of what we might lose. We should be more afraid of what we are already losing. We are losing a generation and we are not going to just sit by and just do what everybody else is doing or even do what we've always done and let them slip away. We didn't start that way. We've never operated that way. God is doing some amazing things in our midst right now. Are you watching? Do you see what God is doing? I can tell you that I was uh, met up with a, with a child who had an envelope with 79 cents in change in it who wanted to participate and not get left out of project accessibility. Beautiful. We had an offering, $5 from, from a, on one of our giving platforms from a new person. And they said, let me stop making excuses and start making a difference. Gifts are so often measured by size and that's not really the point. We've had some huge gifts as well, so much generosity and in, in, in time and talents, but it's not the size that matters alone, it's the engagement, it's the choice, it's buying in, and it's been so fun to have tracked the Advent bag of wonder usage to people both far and near. <laughs> I love the pictures that you sent in, uh, you, you, you set the Advent candles up on your table to enjoy with your meals, or you, you, you displayed it in a prominent place in your houses. Thank you for letting us know that it made a difference for you. It's hearing from people who are geographically distant, but who choose to join us at Into One and be close through church online. We're thinking of you, Tori, today as well. Here's a great snippet of a story. This is a lady who joins us from Ottawa. She decided she wants to participate. So she knitted a baby blanket and then mailed it to us so that we could pass it along to Cheryl Lindquist at the Markham Stoville Crisis Pregnancy Center. How amazing is that? Come on, I love that story. I love that creative engagement. You are amazing people. You are people uh, of, of God called His children. And I'm so excited to be starting 2021 with you. We don't walk alone. Let's keep walking together in earnest pursuit of Jesus. Kind Father, I thank you for the way that you have been at work in our lives, for the way that you are at work in our lives right now. And because of those things, we can trust you for how you will be at work in the future. If you've laid this kind of a foundation, what do you have in store for our future? God, I'm humbled by what you have put into place and what you are working out Thank you for the participation. Thank you for the partnership with your Holy Spirit. And please don't let it stop. God, I pray for my friends today as they, they start a new year. And we're at all kinds of different places, honestly, right now. Some of us are, 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 are in a, an awesome spot. We're, we're delighted. We're, we're happy. We've seen you at work. And we're, we're convinced that, that we can go forward. We can do anything with you on our side. And there's, there's others of us who are, oh, man, we're, we're really struggling. We, we've had a number of things that have happened. Over the last year, the last years, that are, that are hurting. There are weights that are pulling us down. Their are chains like, like uh, Jacob Marley's chains. <laughs> we, I, don't, I don't know how I'm going to get rid of this stuff that, that holds my heart back. I, I, don't, I don't know how to forgive. I'm, I'm trying, but I, I can't do it. I, I just hurt so much inside. God, meet these, my friends, today. Give them the grace to do whatever it is that you were calling them to do. For my friends who are at a spot right now, whether they are unwell or someone near to them is unwell, we have heard so much about illness in the news that it's uh, almost compassion fatigue, but when it's close to home, it just, it just hurts. And now we've got caregiver fatigue. We don't, we don't know how to keep caring. Uh, I, I mean to, but I'm, I'm just drained. Holy Spirit, I pray for your strength to revitalize, to bring about wholeness in those that are ill and in those who are tired of illness. Bring restoration, I pray. For those who who are in need and they say, it's wonderful to talk about all these things, but you know what? I got nothing right now. I I feel like everything good that I had has been pulled out of my hands. Every time I try to take take a step forward, something comes up and the, the rug gets pulled out from under me again. Why can nothing go my way? Why, why does it keep feeling like I'm bumping into a wall? Lord Jesus, for these of my friends, I pray that you would provide in all the different ways. It's never one. It's always many. Emotionally, financially, spiritually, physiologically God in all the different ways that we exist as a person I pray that you would provide for my friends that are in this place help them to see you as I get to see you every once in a while when 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 my faith is is right on and and, and I have no questions in my head it's not all the time but when it's like that God I pray that you would give them that kind of a moment that you can do anything you answer above and beyond all that we can ask or even imagine Transform hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. And for any of my friends who would like prayer for themselves specifically, we have a spot online where they can ask for prayer right now, or we can ask our church host to also put up the link for uh, how to submit a prayer request to ask the church to pray. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, be in us, but we, we recognize that even in saying that we need you to do more, than that, we need you to guide us forward and teach us how to do what we're supposed to do. But as we start this new year, we're going to do it eyes up on you. We are focused on the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who designed it, who wrote it, and continues to write it right now. We put our eyes on you first, everything else after that. Lord Jesus, help us today, once again, to choose you, to name you, and submit to you as our Lord. That is our hope and our freedom. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.